Hello and welcome to The Change Troubleshooter. This is Nina Dar's podcast. Hello and welcome to Season 3 of The Change Troubleshooter. If not you, who? This is Episode 3. Climate action is nothing new. In today's world, with all the focus on the global effort to battle climate change and bring down CO2 emissions, you'd be forgiven for thinking that all this activism and attention on the environment was something new. Far from it. The fight for the planet has been going on for decades. The foot soldiers' warnings went unheeded for many years. People just weren't interested in saving what to them appeared to be a perfectly healthy planet. It's only now that people are hopefully waking up to the massive changes needed for our very survival. Steve Charter has spent decades on the front lines, advising local governments on building and construction policy, among other things. In today's fascinating episode, Nina gets his backstory. Today I'm here with Steve Charter from SC2 Consulting, which really does not describe what Steve gets involved in. He is involved in so many different businesses and projects and is one of many people who got involved in climate change action and sustainability way before most of the rest of us were talking about it. He has dedicated his whole career to working in this space and it gives me great pleasure to be able to talk to him today about that timeline so that we all recognize and get some real insight into just how long people have been trying to convince us that our actions and behavior can't continue in the way that we thought they could. So welcome, Steve. So great to see you. Thank you, Nina. So I am a self-confessed fairly newbie to all of this, although my own business was trying in its own way since 2004 to create a more human approach to innovation and change. Definitely in the last few years, I have ramped up not just working from an ethical and more human perspective, but understanding the impact of our actions on our planet. And I met you through the Climate Coaching Alliance, which is a great organization full of like minds for anybody out there who's looking to join a global network in that way. And it's been really rich for me. And meeting people like you, Steve, just been brilliant. So I'll shut up and let you tell us about how you started. Why did this mean so much to you in the early days of your career? Right. So how it started for me was back in my 20s, which was in the 1980s. Kind of coincided with when I learned to meditate and I started realising that my mind had been rather more closed than I realised and I started sort of more of an internal reflection, reading some books on Buddhism and so on. Uh, particularly reading Resurgence magazine and some of the authors like Fritjof Capra, who have been around for a long time in systems thinking and ecological thinking. I've gone to CND demos and things like that. So I had 
that sort of background. And so I started exploring these things informally, my own sort of informal learning, and it just became apparent, you know, there were people that knew about climate change then. And those early pioneers were basically saying the same messages essential messages as we still still have now so i realized well it seems like this is real you know this is significant and if it's significant you know what could be more important to work on than trying to deal with these significant problems of our time so i went back to university and did a environmental planning masters and focused everything on sustainability having worked for a small steel export company uh, selling steel bars to Americans and Canadians, which I did for seven years and learned a lot from that and enjoyed that in many ways, but felt that I wanted to align my work with my values. So I took that sort of fairly conventional route of going back to university, but with this clear focus on sustainability as why I was doing this. I also started getting involved in things. So I helped set up a green society with friends. Uh, two of us were on the campus environment committee, which included the vice chancellor and so on. So that was really actually as important, I would say, as my planning master's. But because I had purpose and and some experience, you know, being a mature student made a, a difference. I ended up winning the course prize for my dissertation, planning for sustainability question mark, and then got employed by the, the prof who was very good to help start a new green planning course the following year because they had recognised that they weren't doing up on sustainability. So that was the start. And Within my dissertation, I looked at the leading local authorities that were ahead of the game and appeared to be committed on sustainability and climate change back then. So it was 92 when I completed that course, so the same year as the Earth Summit. And Leicester had a project called Leicester Environment City. There were four environment cities, Leicester, Peterborough, Leeds and Middlesbrough, I think was the fourth one. Lester was the first, was involved in developing the concept. And so I looked at the Lester model within my dissertation. They liked what I did. Uh, so I ended up getting a job there within the Lester Environment City project in 1993 as one of the first local Agenda 21 coordinators in the country in the, in the old days of local Agenda 21 and basically have been working in sustainability since then, sometimes very mainstream, sometimes very grassroots, and particularly sustainable building issues for about 15 years of that period of time, particularly around sustainable building training and education, because the built environment is in many ways the single biggest area of impacts, carbon and waste and so on with many of the solutions known. And we can't build the buildings or retrofit the buildings without the skills and the knowledge, which we clearly don't have very widely at the moment. Therefore, training and education seem to be a key issue. So I did have done a lot of work around those areas over the years. I mean, I mean all that sounds amazing. And when you listen to a timeline like that, you actually think, wow, have we all been doing loads of stuff really? And we don't really give 
any credit to that because we're not very good at looking back and saying actually we did do this you know in the 80s we were doing this in the 90s like you say the world summit and then places like Leicester who knew (laughs) that Leicester were thought leaders in that way was that a time filled with hope in this area did you think actually we're changing the world already or were you one of just a few people that were on the margins while the rest of us were dancing to Madonna? Uh, I'd say it's more of the latter than the former. <laughs> uh, it's always been a slog. It's always been hard work. It's always been the case that there are good things going on, but they have been on the margins rather than in the mainstream. And you've had more of the greenwash kind of approach or superficial approaches or approaches based on limited knowledge and understanding that have taken most of the mainstream interest in terms of okay what can we get away with as the minimum rather than how do we do this properly so for example in the late 90s I proposed and then helped set up with others a social enterprise in Somerset initially called Somerset Trust for Sustainable Development and then Ecos Trust, which was deliberately set up to create a social enterprise that provided knowledge, expertise, information on sustainable building and and particularly sustainable housing issues, as well as to be a not-for-profit developer of eco-housing. And what was the case then certainly was There were social enterprises in particular were the most pioneering organisations around sustainable housing. So the bedset development, which happened around 2000 as well, which is the first large eco-housing development in Beddington in, in the London Borough of Sutton. Again, that was driven by social enterprise, by a regional. So these things have been going on but they've often needed different vehicles to either the private sector or the public sector that have an element of the dynamism of private sector that's able to come from more of a public interest perspective that you'd see more of in in the public sector. And this is so interesting, isn't it? Because also the timeline we're talking about of late 80s into 90s where capitalism as we know it today really flourished so what you're talking about is that dynamic there that obviously they're not happy bedfellows really with you know public social enterprise initiatives with the champagne socialists that were just exploding and money markets going crazy and not that I want to put this on Tony Blair but you know he was fronting a new world new labor a new way of living our very prosperous lives and when you look back at that although it was fantastically fun if you were part of what was going on there Actually, I don't remember anybody saying, oh, but there's a sustainability agenda here. There's a moment here that we could deliver some real change that would future-proof us going forward. But the decision-making was in the hands of people that 
personally, I would say, didn't have the deep expertise that was needed because it was more about being seen to have a policy rather than the the policy or strategy or project having real depth of credibility to it. And you know, along the way, there's been all sorts of challenging or frustrating political and economic situations. So while I was working in Leicester, the local government organisation was reorganisation was going on, which got to the point where Leicestershire County Council and Leicester City Council, and this was a project that was based on partnership between these levels of the public sector, they stopped talking to each other because they were both fighting for control of the Leicester City process. So that was a, a challenge. Then in the early 2000s, we had the crash, the financial crisis. So that was a whole challenge because no one made any decisions for kind of two years because no one knew what was going on. Then basically in the 2010s, you had a Tory government with uh, considerable anti-green influence. So essentially, we had about a decade of the not brilliant policies, but at least there were some policies being dismantled steadily. So whilst the Code for Sustainable Homes had its imperfections, that then got dismantled and all the major house builders who'd gone through the process of sort of a lot of them a bit of greenwash to start with, but then realising actually building lower energy homes makes sense. It makes commercial sense. It's, it's good messages we can put across to customers. We know how to do it properly now. It's not just about slapping on renewables. It's about building lower energy, healthier homes. And then all the policy drivers got taken away and there is no vision. And there was no vision. It was just back to, well, house building isn't actually about building quality homes anymore. It's just another industry for maximising profits. I know that so many of our listeners will resonate with what you're saying there from even if they are not in this world. What you're talking about represents what happened in every business. Absolutely. And, you know, where there was, uh, for those of us who have spent a career in change, where something did exist, there was a nugget of something good, like you say, not perfect, but a nugget of something at least to work from. But the idea was, oh, no, that doesn't work. Let's find something new. Let's bring in this new thing, lots of buzzwords. And, and, you know, a lot of consultants were involved in this, coming up with a lot of management theories. Management accounting became such a dominant force in industry. And we have to look at that and think, hang on a minute, management accounting itself was something that was created to create a way of making money out of another industry. Yes. Just bonkers. So, I mean, some of the examples of how things have not really moved forward in 10 to 15 years. So around 2008 to about 2011, I think it was, I was working quite a lot with Kent County Council with their sustainability manager. And at that time, the Thames Gateway was seen as the largest development site in Europe. And so the uh, Thames Gateway Authority was wanting some flagship sustainability projects, which was you know great. 
So we proposed, well, how about a dedicated sustainable construction training centre? And actually for that to work best, that would make a most sense if that sat within a sustainable enterprise park. So you've got some of the construction supply chain there, you know, architects focused on sustainable housing and so on, alongside other enterprises and use that to have some elements of visitor attractions, kind of informal learning. So I led the work on the sustainable construction training centre element and that went ahead and that got built. More than £6 million sustainable construction training centre got built. I included recommendations in that as to how it should be run. And because in those days we had the regional development agencies, the RDAs, they had their fingers in, in the decision-making pies on everything. And they, as unelected bodies, determined how this process would be taken forward. And so their decision cut Kent County Council out of how this centre would be run, much to the frustration of Kent, who'd done all the work, who were in charge of all the skills programmes, they handed it over to the district council and the further education college, which, however well-meaning, further education colleges don't tend to have any experience whatsoever and are not designed to do anything innovative or creative, really. So the centre got built, impressive building, and then they got European funding for running the skills programme for a couple of years had it run by people that knew nothing about sustainable construction skills. And once the um, European skills funding ran out, then they had a nice expensive building and really it didn't do anything significant in relation to sustainable construction training after that. And that coincided with doing work to myself and a very experienced green builder. We got the first sustainable construction qualification into the national qualifications system. But to deliver that qualification, you need experienced trainers who know what they're talking about. And of course, most of the construction trainers in the country do not have that experience. So all the work we did towards, well, if you're going to set up that qualification, you need to have a train the trainers system. All that gets ignored and you know, so, so that people can get the kudos. So the sector skills council, construction skills could say, yeah, we've supported this sustainable construction training qualification getting into the system, but then no one's delivering it. And if they are, they're probably not particularly competent as trainers for that sustainability element. So yes, a number of frustrations over the years. And we are both uh, fans of system thinking. Yeah. Um, and we both, tried to bring this into our projects and that's exactly what you're talking about there and those for anybody listening who tries to do that tries to look at the whole picture and say right from the beginning do we realize that for this to work we need this this needs to happen these people need to be in place then there needs to be some education there needs to be some training there needs to be some way of this becoming self-sustaining but otherwise it fails and no matter how many times people like us tell the people in charge that this is what needs to be done those corners get cut and people seem to think that they know better and these things will never make as much difference as we claim they will but it is continual self-sabotage isn't it yeah. 
Yes, absolutely. Or it's either self-sabotage or it's, you know, distorting things in the normal ways in order to benefit existing vested interests and existing patterns of how things are done. So, for example, another thing I was involved in, I was on one of the four policy groups for the Green Deal. The intention was a huge new policy approach to dealing with the carbon emissions from our existing homes, which is about 27, 28% of UK carbon emissions is from existing homes, more than a quarter. It's still more than a quarter. You know, this again was getting on for 10 years ago, and I was on the group capacity and innovation group. My role was around the putting forward ideas and proposals around the skills and training issues, because obviously to retrofit the vast number of homes to a decent standard, it's more than just sticking some insulation in the roof or even doing a bit of cavity wall insulation, which are the traditional programs. It's, you know, a deep retrofit is what's needed to get significant reduction in carbon emissions. And so what I saw there was somewhat shocking, although not surprising, because what I saw was that how the policy development system works these days, which is in that instance, the Construction Products Association uh, seconded across staff to work on the development of the Green Deal policy. The Construction Products Association, who represent the manufacturers in the construction industry. So therefore, what we had was a Green Deal that was designed to represent the interests of the construction products manufacturers rather than to achieve you know, good quality outcomes for the homeowner, either in financial or carbon terms. You know, that's not necessarily saying it's wrong. That's just saying that's the way the system works. So that's the same systems that in other areas, how on earth do we get a situation where highly flammable products get used to clad tower blocks and cause horrendous disasters? They come about because we set up systems that are now allow self-regulation by industry in effect. So I think what is happening is we're shifting to the point where people are starting to recognize we cannot carry on doing things in the same way because the reality is it's coming up to 30 years since the Earth Summit, all those COPs and we're up to number 26 now, and carbon emissions are still rising globally. The significant problems of our time, that's the phrase that seems to me the most relevant coming from Einstein's statement, we can't solve the significant problems of our time at the same level of thinking that created them. We have to move to a different level of thinking. That, to me, is one of the most important things to understand, that we need different levels or different patterns of thinking. And I think you know, the chickens are coming home to roost somewhat in that people, you know, government industry are starting to understand that, but they don't actually know yet what those different levels or patterns of thinking are. And it's complex, isn't it? It's, yeah. We're now, thanks to you, we are getting some insight into what really happens and the decisions that get made And also I've seen some of this behind the scenes when some of it seems actually well-intentioned, 
and people will struggle. They, they want the change to happen and then struggle with how they move from plan to action. And yeah. it's always the hardest section of delivering change. Yeah. And you've talked about many times so far that the right people, the right trained people, the right educated people in the new world either weren't asked or didn't exist. So there's a, a step there that we make sure we get to that point. And very readily, sometimes still well-intentioned, I want to believe, but at the same time, lobbying became a very strong part of these negotiations. And I think there was a moment where the well-intentioned people from industry that would step forward and say, you know, we can help out here. We can perhaps do some of this, take some of the load. Very quickly turned into what we now know as lobbying, where they're saying, actually, we'll do this, but they're doing it purely from a position of protecting what exists today. Well, yes. And in fact, lobbying is one thing, but the issue is actually the policy development process, which doesn't require lobbying because probably started perhaps in the Thatcher era, but particularly the Blair-Brown era, where a large part of their approach was partnership with industry. What I saw directly was that you don't need to lobby when you are invited to be part of the policy development process. So those Green Deal policy groups were dominated by industry representatives from sectors such as something like the Concrete Association. There was a guy that was always at these events and these meetings, representatives of various technology companies, construction products companies, industry associations. So of those policy groups, say if you've got about 20 people on one of those four policy groups, about four of us were people with some degree of knowledge and understanding about the technical issues. You had the Federation of Master Builders, some really good people that understood the significance of the issues and that for small building companies, kind of members of the FMB, that this was a really important issue and that we're trying to understand the issues. And yeah, they were lobbying on behalf of their members, but they were doing it with an understanding of the strategic importance of their members for dealing with this mass of homes in our country and how important local builders are for a local economy, employment, et cetera, et cetera. But most of the people on those groups were company representatives or industry body representatives that were there being paid by their companies or those organisations to make sure they got to those policy meetings and got their interests embedded in the policy. Yeah. And that's not necessarily about saying it's right or wrong. It's just recognising, well, if that's the system you get, then the outcomes you get are these kinds of outcomes. And they're not the outcomes that lead to carbon reduction. So I, I stopped going to those policy groups, as several others did, because it was so obviously pointless. It was a complete waste of time. If I was about creating change towards sustainability, why would I bother going to those policy groups? That's the point I got to. And of course, lo and behold, how much difference did the Green Deal make? Virtually none. So sad. So sad. Uh, I mean, like you said, is not a surprise. I think most people do understand that. 
perhaps not in as much detail as you're giving us today. So it's really interesting to so listen think, to somebody who was there and part of it. Yes. So I think all those experiences came from sort of determination and a certain amount of naivety, perhaps. But I've learned a lot about what doesn't work as much as what does work. So, you know, social enterprise, it can really, really work in terms of being more innovative and creative, but they don't tend to create the volume of change. That They tend to be small players. There's some that, are, you know, bioregional has moved up the scale and do, are doing some larger scale things now and have a bit of a global reach as well. But mainly the social enterprise sector remains quite small and has to become very kind of commercially savvy in order to scale its impacts. The public sector is essentially primarily there for managing the status quo. So again, the public sector is, tends not to be very good at innovation and you tend to have quite conservative decision-making systems there. So innovation and change is a challenge with working with the public sector. And then, you know, when you have decades of budget cuts and changes in power and decision making and so on and just long periods of no one really knowing what's happening or what the next system is going to be which has come in various phases um we had another phase of that in the 2010s really where it was just and then Brexit, you know, no one knew what the hell was going on. So how could anyone make any decisions alongside the budget cuts? So lengthy periods of just inaction because there was no choice. And you give us a picture as well of just how frustrating, how disappointing it must be to be working in that area give it your all, have known a long time ago that these were the issues of our time, but it not being taken seriously, not at any stage really of the timeline that you've taken us through. So what keeps you going? Well, I've got to do something to pay the, pay the mortgage and pay the bills <laughs> and so on. And, you know, there, there doesn't seem to be anything more important to be working on. So whatever the, the challenge um yeah, I did have a period in the early 2000s where I did go and live in southern Spain, live off-grid for five years. I was teaching permaculture courses and involved in a sort of healthy natural living project, which you know had a lot of impacts in changing people's lives. Um, over 600 people came and stayed with us for various periods of time, often weeks or, or months. But I came back from there because I felt I wasn't making a big enough difference. So I, I tried sort of coming out of the system for a period and, and that was okay for a while. But then, you know, the issues are big. So I came back and, and got stuck in again. And what I'm doing now, I still have some involvement in the social enterprise sector. Quite a bit of my work is still in that sector. But I'm also directly involved as a co-founder of two uh, eco enterprises, one in the renewable energy sector and one in the music sector, looking at uh, people and planet friendly solutions for the music industry, because the private sector is the most dynamic sector we have. And there are a few examples of companies that 
are doing things a bit differently and interestingly and creatively, both small and large companies. So I've come back with one foot in the private sector world. And then do you think that change has happened because of consumer demand? Do you think that we are all waking up to it so the private sector know that they have to do something if they want to remain relevant in our world going forward and where we spend our money? I think it's partly that. It's also people with ethics recognising, well, we can have ethical businesses that can be really successful. So one of the examples is Lush Cosmetics, which is a very large global company, which is very, very strongly driven by ethical considerations from the, the top level, from the founder level. And that employs a lot of people that also share those ethics. So you can have those examples which are looking right through how the supply chain and how they create their products, what the products are made from in order to shorten supply chains, to use organic materials, to look at who the suppliers are to support small enterprises in in terms of the materials that get used for the manufacture of their products and so on. So, yeah, there's a few examples like that. Not so many, but I think that's coming from a recognition, the same sort of recognition that we need big businesses that are doing things differently to show that things can be done differently and to make a bigger difference. So I think we'll see a lot more of that. We have to see a lot more of that in the next 10 years. When we talk about, if not you, who, then you are clearly doing your bit, regardless of how frustrating that journey has been. It is amazing. And you've tried everything, even the work that you're talking about on permaculture, which I think is another podcast of its own, is fantastic that you went off grid and people joined you in that experience. And I'm sure you did change the lives of many people. And here you are now looking at private enterprise, which sounds really exciting, especially when you're looking at the music industry. And and then you mention companies like Lush that everyone will know. So is that the easiest part we play? Is this our part to play? I think one of the things I've learned over the years, and the Lush example is a good one, is that because of complexity, you can never know the detail. You can never know precisely what your impacts or ripple effects will be. However, if you are committed and doing things with a a deeper level of understanding and different patterns of thinking, it is almost inevitable that some significant ripple effects will happen. So in the 10 or so permaculture courses I ran when I was living in Spain, One person on that course was a guy called Paolo, who became the permaculture advisor to Lush Cosmetics. And he had a fundamental influence on that organization. I mean, he stood out as a person in terms of when when you're teaching courses, there are a few people that you, you might have on a course that, okay, there's something a bit special to this person. He was one of those unusual people. But I had no idea when he came on the course that he would go on to have that kind of ripple effect impact on a company like Lush. 
although you know having spent some time with him it wasn't surprising because he was very very bright and charismatic person so the first permaculture course i was involved in organizing and teaching on i partly did that because i had a good friend who'd been working in the anti-vivid section animal rights sector for a long time was suffering from burnout from that and compassion fatigue and i could see this guy really needs permaculture because permaculture is you know, is a positive thing the problem is the solution is one of the principles so it's a solutions oriented system of of doing things design and and practice and um so we, I think we just had four people on the course. I never would have guessed he's gone on to become possibly the most active, certainly one of the most active permaculture teachers in the country because he found something that you know gave him that positivity and he was just able to go, yeah, I love doing this. It's a great thing to teach permaculture courses and just has got on with it. So again, a ripple effect that I never could have predicted but just great to see and all this is truly inspiring and and really great to hear and really for us similar to the journey that I've been putting myself on is just to get involved you don't need you don't need to be an expert do you no one is going to call you out for not knowing because they will just be so pleased that you decided to get involved Yes, and I think having the commitment to know or find out is important if you don't know. But that was one of the things I learned from being in the steel industry. You know, if you don't know about a product that you're selling, the one thing you must say is that you don't, if someone asks you a technical question, I don't know, but I will find out for you and I will get back to you as soon as I can. Selling to Americans and buying from Yorkshiremen was very, very useful in terms of you know, honesty and, and customer service. So I learned that very early on. So if you don't know something in, in relation to sustainability or climate change or regenerative issues then uh, and approaches then you know being clear that you don't know but having the interest and the commitment to find out or to talk to others and you know I think one of the things I've also found out is in the various areas that are you know sustainable building the people who really know there aren't that many of them (laughs) You know, once you're into the networks, it's not that difficult to find people who really know their stuff. And that, to me, is one of the most important things in these areas is to know your own limits, but to know who you can go to to find out or get involved, whether it's the design side or the product side or the project management side, say in construction, that getting in the right networks is important. You've talked and taken us through the policies and legislation and politics involved in all of these things. So another thing that we can do is make our views known, that if we believe where I live now, we rejected the town plan because of the number of green issues that were being ignored. And when when I listened to you talk, Steve, and all about sustainable house building, and I look at what is happening on my own doorstep, actually yeah. makes me very angry. It could be so different today based on what you have told us. Yeah, and there's a very good example. There is a very good organisation called the Good Homes Alliance, which includes 
house builders, architects, lot, quite a number of local authorities now, over 20 local authorities, which are also house builders. And they are just, they're part of that organization because they're committed to building good homes and understanding what good homes means, both in terms of uh, carbon reduction, low energy homes and healthy homes and doing that accordingly. So for example, Exeter City Council, uh, as a house building local authority only builds homes to passive house standard now, which is the most reliable low energy standard in the world. And they've worked out how to do that at no extra cost, uh, because it can be done if you keep trying and researching the ways to do it, these things can be achieved. So there's a, you know, Oxford City Council, Cambridge City Council, amongst the members, various London boroughs and various housing developers that are committed to, to trying to do things right. Yes, making a profit if they're private sector companies. It's, of course, profit is still completely valid, but alongside trying to get these things right. And they're recognising it's, you know, they see the long-term strategic opportunity there as, as businesses. This again is, I guess, one of my frustrations that it has been fantastic talking to you today. And I have learned so much in this short time, but it frustrates me that I have to know who you are and we had to have a connection for me to hear from someone like you. I want you to be on Sky News and to be on the BBC where you can be telling many people what is going on here. So I think we just don't get access to the people who know and have experienced what is really going on in this yeah. timeline. I think this is one of the areas where you know, our mutual interest in coaching is what I've focused more on in the last 10, 15 years is education, training and so on. But what I'm seeing now is that actually coaching because it's more an ongoing process and it's relating to what personal or organizational goals are. This is a really interesting area to me that to work with people and with companies or organizations to help them through that steady process of exploring the issues, understanding how they relate to the systems they're part of, uh, rather than, you know, the traditional consultancy type approach of, in, in effect, I'm an expert and here's the answer you need, without having that kind of real, often without having that opportunity to really understand the organisation and, and the context that it operates in. You can obviously do, you know, that's part of the job to do that to a certain extent, but People never really tell you everything, do they? <laughs> well, not initially. It takes a while. And I'm so glad that I've met you. And as we said before, we've met through the Climate Coaching Alliance. So if anybody wants to join that, there are lots of, it's a truly global organisation and you can get involved on so many different levels yeah. and meet Steve, talk to him more and meet other people like Steve, because thankfully... We have many Steves in the world. They just don't get the airtime that they should. And I am so glad that we could give you that today as part of this podcast. Oh, so God. I hope this is the first of many, Steve, because we'll definitely get you back to do one on permaculture because I'm sure for the name drop that we put in there, um, many people will be thinking now, what is that? But we'll save that for another time. 
But thanks so much. It's been so interesting. And I'm sure everybody will find this really informative and hopefully take a lot away from it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Great to see you doing this work and, and the, the various things you're involved with, which are also very creative and interesting. <laughs> thank you. Well, thanks again to Nina's guests and thank you for listening to The Change Troubleshooter. If you'd like to continue the conversation, contact Nina directly, ninadar.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please like it. Join us again for the next episode of The Change Troubleshooter. This has been a Sun Soaked Creative production.